Welcome to the Jack Weston MCAT Podcast with your host, Phil Hawkins and Asai Calderon Muñiz. Welcome, everyone. We are excited for yet another episode of the podcast. Today, we actually have a very special guest. We have Nicole with us. She's the admissions director here at Jack Weston. We are very excited to talk about kind of the admissions process, um, what you need to know, what you need to do, timelines, all of that in this podcast. Very excited. Something else I'm excited for you guys is Thanksgiving is coming up. So I don't know if you guys have any foods in particular that you normally eat around this time or traditions. Um, I, I feel I see you smiling. No, I, I I'm just thinking story like, here. No, I'm just thinking like now's the time if the student is studying for the MCAT, might as well hit the, the digestive system. Like, you know, the week of Thanksgiving, because that's all you're going to be thinking about anyway. But, you know, I, the digestive system doesn't get enough love, in my opinion. But that's fine. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I do think um, I'm actually pretty excited for this because I know a lot of people are thinking admissions like in the fall is like that's a little bit early to be thinking about that. But um, speaking from experience, it moves way faster. And the ad- whole admissions process is a lot more complex than I think students at least myself, I was not really fully prepared for and uh, ready for. And so I think it's not a bad idea to be starting to think about this early. And so kind of jumping into that makes makes a ton of sense. Absolutely. Um, and yeah. with that, Nicole, why don't you go ahead and get us started? All right. Thank you both for having me today. I'm so excited to be sharing more about the admissions process. And I hope we're able to help students gain a better understanding of what that looks like and move through it a little bit more confidently. But yeah, I completely agree, Phil. Many students don't realize the complexities of the application process and the importance of starting early. And I really think it's important to emphasize that application timeline as we move forward, keeping in mind that there are several components, particularly in the primary application process that need to be completed before you can actually submit your application. So for those students that are looking to submit early summer, looking at maybe the May-June timeline for an early application submission, I really suggest getting started with your personal statement the prior December through February, that winter really. And the biggest reason I suggest that is because, again, keeping in mind all the other moving parts of the primary application, it's important to be able to have a perfect personal statement to then move through the other parts as well. Keep in mind throughout this process, you'll also be working through the MCAT and you'll have school, work, family, life obligations, whatever else it may be. And getting started on that personal statement early will allow you to complete that and then confidently and comfortably move into the other parts of the primary application process as well. Yeah, I know that I was like definitely running behind time personally when I was applying. And I feel like the only thing that I actually spent like kind of prepared a little bit for and spent the right amount of time was the personal statement. And I know that that helped me a lot. There's a lot of like places I went and interviewed that specifically mentioned my personal states, personal statement said that it kind of stuck out, stuck out. And that's one of the reasons I, you know, they invited me to come talk to them. And so like, if I had spent as much time on everything else as I had my personal statement, I feel like my application would have been like even better. Um, but students fall into this thing and this isn't, this isn't just during this time frame. I feel like this continues on like for a while where you're just kind of focused on like the next thing and like everything after that doesn't exist. And so like students are focused on the MCAT. They're not thinking about the personal statement, especially not thinking about secondaries. And like, that's a big chunk of time and a lot of effort goes into this. I feel like that, that continued to happen to me, even into med school. It's like, oh, I just have an exam this week. I'm like, oh no, the boards, that's not a thing. Like that's that's not that's not this month, and so it doesn't exist. Um, so, kind of learning to think ahead is a, a a good a good thing to be doing. You know, starting now because you kind of need to be thinking like three or four steps ahead, just kind of into the future. Period. Yeah. Something else is, and I think we've we've talked about this before, um, and it will continue to apply, like Phil said, even through medical school. A lot of us are procrastinators. <laughs> you know, we we can do well under pressure and we have done well under pressure in undergrad. And so, you know, we're like, oh, we can we can put that off and we can put off, you know, working on the personal statement. We can put off working on our secondaries. I can I can write that up really quickly. And the reality is this is not something you want to 
do very quickly, right? This is not something that you want to procrastinate on, not just because like you can get something decent out, right? But you're not going to get it as refined as you could. You're not going to get it to be the best representation of you holistically as you could if, let's say, you know, you sat down one weekend and got a whole lot done and then you can come back and revisit it, right? And then edit it. And every time you'll find something different that you want to adjust, a different way that maybe you want to phrase an experience. And so giving yourself that buffer of, okay, I can sit down and maybe I can get something really great done. I have the potential for something even greater. And you guys have heard me say this a lot of times, I think at this point, Um, it's about like progression, not perfection. Having that buffer time allows you to reach a point of darn near perfection when you're Mm -hmm. submitting these apps. And that's really what you want, right? That best representation of yourself. So give yourself the time to get that out there. Yeah. When I was saying, you know, personal statements, the only thing I actually spent the right amount of time on, I spent months going on this and like multiple Mm -hmm. revisions and kind of going through and I didn't see past that. So I like, I was like last minute for a lot of the other things that we're going to be talking about today. But I think starting on that personal statement is a good idea. Um, And so like, you know, if you're applying in June, you know, start that personal statement over the winter, right? Like December, like your winter break. That's a great time to be at, at the very least, like starting to kind of put some, put some pen to paper and get some ideas out. Um, Nicole, about how long do you, cause I know you do a lot of stuff with like helping students with their personal statements and like, you know, as part of the admissions program that we have here at Jack Weston, um, how much, about how much time do you think a student needs to put into their personal statement in terms of just kind of overall time commitment and like number of revisions and kind of putting all that together? So the timeline will completely vary depending on the student. I think students that start early and have the proper amount of time to be able to go through several drafts and utilize different experiences depending on what fits and feels best to them, take about two months, two to three months, I'd say, to create a perfected draft. However, we also have seen students that were able to complete it in shorter amounts of time as well, just depending on what they were looking for. And again, like you both mentioned, that two to three month span allows students to have the time to recraft if they decide there's an experience that fits a little bit better for what they're looking for. And we typically see anywhere from like five to 15 drafts that we go through with students. And some drafts could be as simple as going through grammatical or structural changes, while others include revising experiences, really basically scratching out the entire statement and starting from scratch. And again, the earlier you begin, the more luxury of time you have to work through and progress toward that near perfect statement, as as I mentioned. Yeah. And since you guys, you know, Phil, since since you're touching a little more on personal statements, I like that you mentioned that it took you, you know, a couple months. It also took me a couple months. And Nicole, you mentioned that it can take anywhere from five to 10, 15 drafts. I think mine was about a dozen or so drafts. And I actually kept each of my drafts just in case there was something that, you know, I initially wanted to include and then got rid of and then wanted to come back to. Um, And that's something that I think is really amazing about the Jack Weston admissions um, process is that you get unlimited help with these, with your personal statement. And that's huge. The personal statement like you, Phil, was probably one of the pieces I spent the most, if not the most time aside from MCAT studying on. Um, And like you, I suspect that that was why I got a lot of the interviews that I got. Um, And so making sure that you you take advantage of that is really, really important. Leverage the resources that you have to get that personal statement just really great. Um, because if you're listening to our podcast, I suspect that you've been working on, you know, being the the best version of yourself in, in pre-med, making sure that you're studying for the MCAT in particular, um, but also getting really well-rounded experiences. And so having that reflected is important. Um, I'm, I'm a very big, I'm very excited about that, that uh, support that is provided here at Jack Weston. Yeah. Nicole, I know you talked about like, you know, sometimes just scratching it out. I think that's huge. I know a lot of times students get kind of like caught in on things. And I, what, what I ended up doing, I wrote three, like not revisions, but three just completely different essays. And I'm like, here's one focused on, like, I grew up on a farm and just kind of like focusing on kind of like how, like my growing up. And then one about how, like at one point, like I lost my house in a fire. And like, there was a thing about that. And then a thing about like working at a nursing home and spending time there for like a decade, like two or three hours every day for a decade. And 
like I ended up writing because I'm like, I didn't know which one would be the best. And I ended up like taking it and like showing it to people. And they're like, all right, which one of these essays do you like? And they're like, well, I really like this part of this one. And then this part of this one. And like, there's an interesting thing here in this other one that I kind of like. And so I ended up writing eventually on kind of all three and like Frankensteining them together into one like <laughs> personal statement, which was about like growth and change and you know like living on a farm like life cycles and then a house burning down and then rebuilding and then you know being young but working in like you know a nursing home and kind of like all of that stuff and it ended up being like a great personal statement it's like i feel like i'm not a writer but that's like the only thing i've written that i'm like that was like i actually i feel like i did a good job on that um everything else was like i need a paper it's due by friday i need to put this together um but that like understanding that like what you think that you're going to write about may not be what you should write about. And maybe like learning to kind of change and having all those revisions, just having the the people there to kind of like offer insight, um, especially people who know the MCAT process. Cause while it's, it's, you know, anybody's input and criticism is valuable. Like, I feel like, you know, a lot of the people I'd ask originally to like, help me look at my personal statement were people who like had no idea what was going on in medicine or like, but like applying to med school and things like that. And like, I feel like I could have maybe gotten some better advice from people who understood the process a little bit better. But I just really like that you said, you know, sometimes it's grammar stuff. Sometimes it's just like starting over and like doing a completely new thing. Um, cause I think that's a big deal. And I know a lot of times students get kind of like caught in the, in the nitty gritty and they're just trying to like, how can I word this one sentence better? And it's like, no, like maybe there's a better topic. Um, and just learning to kind of like step back. Yeah. And something, something that, um, that you said, Phil, that kind of stuck out to me you said, you know, who you asked, right. To read your, your personal statement. Um, another advantage here is that this is not, you know, someone that, knows you your entire life, knows what you've been through. They know how you're trying to, or what you're trying to portray when you, you know, write your personal statement. And while their input is valuable, right? So is having someone, not just who knows the, um, the MCAT, pro or the um, med school app process, but also who, when they first start working with you, don't know you and they get to learn who you are as they continue working with you because then they can truly say, okay, this is how your personal statement is coming off. Right. But as I know you more, I'm seeing maybe this isn't how you're trying to have it come off. And so being able to work on that, that's also really important and something that is really easy to not think about if you're not actively looking for that. Yeah. Not to mention that if you just ask your mom, like they're, they're going to say like, oh, it's perfect. Right. No matter, no matter what you write about, they're never going to give that criticism. Like, oh, this is bad. You should make this better. Um, at least my mom would never do that. Mom will always think it's perfect. Right. And exactly. I definitely think what you both said was incredibly valuable. Phil, from what you were saying about your personal statement, I think something that seems like stood out from what you're sharing is that your statement really showed your character. You showed so many different skills, just even in that short description you gave us, we were able to understand so much about you and your personality. And I think that's something that we like to highlight with our students. It's really easy to just talk about experiences in the personal statement, but we want to understand what makes you unique in the midst of that. How did that experience allow you to stand out as an applicant? And why are you going to be a better medical student and future physician because of that? And I think that's where it's important to keep in mind really everything that you've been through. As, as I mentioned, like we don't know everything until we get to know more about you. And that's why initially too, I like to have students go through a brainstorming process where they basically list like every single experience they've been through that could have in any capacity impacted their path to medicine. So we can also see how it fits together and will allow us to tell a story that captures the attention of the reader and shows what fits. Sometimes that big aha moment isn't the direction that we decide to go with. We may end up highlighting it in some place in the personal statement, but it might not be the theme or the objective of the statement, getting that out there. Yeah, I feel like it's always better to have way more stuff and then cut down to like the core of like the best ideas than it is that like for students to just try to like, I just need to make this bigger and add stuff. Like you want to start with like, I have so many things to say and then trying to cut that down ends up being better, but you're absolutely right. I think a lot of students, um, and Nicole, like, I'm sure you, like you may, I, I assume you're going to like agree with this kind of like view. There's a lot of students that I've seen and like helped out with their personal statements in the past. I don't do that anymore, but 
um, they would focus on like, oh, you know, I shadowed a doctor and I learned about blah, blah, blah. And like, like that, that doesn't really tell me who you are. And like some of the best personal statements I've seen has been like about like a guy that went and played chess in the parks, like on, like on weekends or, um, or, uh, like a woman who was really into swimming and it was about swimming and breathing. And like, it was just like a really interesting thing that like, even now, 10 years later, I'm like, I still remember this thing. And that's the sort of thing that you want to you know, be memorable because a lot of, you know, med schools are getting 8,000, 10,000 applicants. And so it's not just about like showing that, you know, you care about medicine, um, but it's also about coming across as a person, um, somebody that like somebody will read this and be like, I want to talk to this person more. I want to, cause that's, that's where the interviews come in. It's like, you do well in the personal statements helps with the secondaries and then interviews. And so kind of putting all that together and kind of understanding the overall process. Absolutely. I completely agree with all that. You hit it on the head. So I know, I know that there's some other things that we're kind of hitting the personal statement stuff hard. Um, and I like our idea is like, oh, we're going to talk about that for just like, you know, a couple of, a couple of minutes. Um, but there's a lot of other stuff that I know students have a lot of questions about like experiences, uh, like, you know, clinical experiences, research experiences. Um, and I know like the, 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 the stuff that you do with admissions, Nicole, it's not just personal statements like you do with that. And then with like secondaries and help with interviews and kind of like, it's the whole like sort of package um, you know, helping students kind of get through the entire application process. Um, but I'm just kind of curious, like what your thoughts are on the, uh, like clinical experiences or research experiences side of things. Yeah, of course. So I always try to emphasize the importance of students obtaining clinical and research experiences, because that's going to be a large part of medical school, specifically the clinical experience. And the more you obtain, the better you'll understand what that's going to look like. And medical schools will also understand that you know what to expect, you know what's coming. And that's extremely important when you're able to reflect on your direct patient interactions, different skills that you obtained, like let's say taking vitals in the clinical setting, or even helping transport a patient from room to room and having interactions in that capacity. All that allows you to build skills and better understand the healthcare and medical system which will then allow you to reflect on that and become a better applicant. Now, we also understand that right now with COVID, mm -hmm. it's a little bit different obtaining experiences and some of those in-person opportunities may be a little bit more limited. And that's where we suggest getting creative right now. You can obtain clinical experiences in a virtual capacity. So we have some students that are doing virtual scribing, virtual shadowing, we have students that are sending letters each week to um, patients in senior centers or even sending cards to those that are in hospice. And that's just a way for them to connect with patients. And sometimes that's made a huge difference for both the patients and the families. So there's different ways that you can continue to obtain clinical experiences. And of course, research is always really important as well. Research helps medicine advance. And if you're involved in it on that back end, you understand more about the changes into the field of medicine, the new innovation that occurs, the new technology that's supporting the field of medicine, and your greater depth of understanding of that, again, will make you a better applicant. It's also important to consider the schools that you're applying to and what they focus on. Some are going to be more clinically focused, some will be more focused on research, some will even be more focused on rural and serving underserved communities. And that's where I would say emphasizing um, work with underserved communities would be really important, whether that's volunteering at a free clinic or at a rural hospital, or even just showing that you have the desire to serve these populations through volunteering at a homeless shelter or whatever capacity it may be but really showing your desire to help those that are less fortunate than others is important. And one final plug with the experience here is that if you are looking to apply to osteopathic schools, DO schools, it is extremely important to have exposure to osteopathic medicine. This is also going to be mentioned in your personal statement, but here in your experiences, this is where committees will understand your knowledge of osteopathic medicine, 
What do you know about it? Why are you drawn to it? What is it about that holistic approach that makes you want to become an osteopathic physician instead of an allopathic physician? And that's going to be huge. So always, always seek to obtain DO experiences if you're looking to pursue osteopathic medicine and incorporate that not just in your experiences, but also in your personal statement. Yeah, that's, you hit so many really important points, Nicole. And I, if, if folks were not able to, you know, process all of that, go back, <laughs> rewatch that right. bit and make sure that you really get that because there's so much useful information in just that really short um, bit and have so much I, I want to say on this, but I'll keep it short for the sake of time um, with clinical and research experiences. So first, um, I love the point they made about getting creative with things, right? You know, in the past, there, there was definitely a lot more emphasis on um, just sheer amount of time, but with every passing year, there's a lot more that schools want to see who you are, right? What you're interested in, get creative. This is your opportunity to really engage with medicine the way you want to, right? And so they'll see that come through when you write about these clinical experiences, when you write about your research experiences. And so finding something that you're passionate about, use that now, right? And so even if you you already had your experience, and you're like, man, Asai, like, you know, I wasn't super interested in this, but I did it anyway. That's still something that you can write about. And you can say, oh, you know, I, this was something a lot, you know, I had a lot of great experiences with it. I learned a lot. I'm excited to see, you know, what other branches, and this is just thinking about like interviews, conversation, et cetera. Um, you know, what else I can be exposed to um, with the clinical experiences. So just to kind of put it into perspective, this isn't just a, oh, I'm, I'm a pre-med and so I'm calling folks and I'm writing letters. This is something that even in medical school, you will have the opportunity to do as a little bit of background. So folks by now probably know I'm in, I'm in my second year of medical school. Um, and so something that we actually do, we have this thing at my particular hospital called white space. And so this white space is for us to engage in clinical care and studies. Um, however, we see fit as long as it's continuing our education and uh, continuing patient care. And during this time, we are calling patients. We are following up on results. We're calling to check in to see how, you know, um, Miss X's uh, blood sugar is today, right? We're still engaging in this continuous clinical care and it's not in a hospital. It's not in a clinic. And so allowing yourself to engage in these opportunities, even if they're not what you traditionally thought medicine was going to be like for you is a really great opportunity. Like Nicole said, for exposure to really understand what you're getting yourself into. And on the note of research, Whatever you write down that you did research on is fair game for conversation during interviews, during the cycle. So make sure that it's something that you actually care about, right? And let's say you already did the research and it was two years ago and you decided you no longer wanted to do that research, which is why you stopped. Make sure that you remember what you did, right? Go back, review that if you need to, review it before writing your uh, research experience bit in your application. So all of these are really important, you know, things that it's really easy to forget. And there are so many moving parts to the application process. So making sure that you have a place where you keep track of all of this is really important. So if you need to write it down, right, have a sheet of paper and then under clinical experiences, write down what you want to remember from this podcast in general, as you continue to work with um, an admissions advisor like uh, like Nicole or with, you know, through the program. Um, but a lot, a lot to keep in mind there. Yeah, I really love, Nicole, that you focus on like knowing where you're applying and understanding what they're looking for, because like, you're absolutely right. Like there's a lot of schools and like what you're trying to do also like falls under that as well. I think most students know I went MD PhD. And so research was incredibly important for my application because I was interviewing to do PhD work as well as like the medical degree. And um, all the schools I applied to were very research focused because of that. And so like research, I mean, even if I was just applying MD at those schools, I would still want to have a good research background. But there's also a lot of, you know, med schools that focus more on rural health and things like that. And there's there's a lot of stuff you can do there. And I think those schools probably don't care quite as much about research. Um, and so just kind of understanding it's not just about the schools, but also what your goals are as a physician. What do you want to do? Um, and like, you know, trying to match that up. I also think that when it comes to the clinical experience, that's something that it, it doesn't matter where you're applying. You have to have some good clinical experience. Um, I like that you mentioned being a transporter, Nicole, because that's what I did for quite a while, a couple of years. And I really loved that job. Like I kind of miss it still just being able to like, you know, go for long walks every day and get plenty of exercise and interact with patients. But the reason that that's so important is that 
like med med schools have more than enough applicants that like the, the issues with med schools and applicants is not there's not enough applicants the issue is we have too many good applicants and so that's why it's so competitive and that's why the mcat's so hard is because they got to try to separate these people somehow and so throwing a monster test at them to like trying to figure out some separation there but med schools worst fears are that they will like take on a student who will not really understand what it means to be a physician and then won't want to finish and won't practice and things like that because that took the spot of someone else um, that would have been really good. And so this is why med schools want to see a lot of clinical experience. They want to know that your idea of becoming a doctor didn't come from you watched all the seasons of Grey's Anatomy. I think they're like 17 seasons or something crazy like that, or Scrubs or House. They want to know that you understand, you know, being a physician isn't about like, you know, being sexy and driving Ferraris and, and things like that. Because it turns out like, despite what's on TV, that's not what it's like. Most of the time you're up to your elbow and uh, bowel or something like that. And it's not nearly as, uh, as, um, picturesque. And so they want to know that you're going into this field and you have an idea of what medicine is like. And so now what that experience is, I feel like isn't quite as important as just making sure you have some experience and that you know what it's like. And that can be like in all different ways. Um, I know some people who um, did a lot of like work with um, like alcoholism in certain populations. And like, that's medicine um, or like, you know, like helping out with um, medic medicine, like, like um, disabilities, like children with disabilities or things like that. I know a lot of people don't think of that as a clinical experience, but that could totally like satisfy some clinical experiences. So working with disabilities or like Native American populations or like prison health or like health in at your college, you know, like being, you know, kind of like having multiple like health sessions, like at the, the dorms and things like that. Like that is some form of clinical care, but you still need to have ideally some stuff that's more on the like hospital, like, like an actual clinic. Although you definitely should, you know, pursue some of those other things, especially if that's what you're interested in. Absolutely. I completely agree with that. And I think a lot of those other interests as well will allow you to highlight skills that are going to make you a better physician. For example, if you've worked in prison health or a behavioral therapist or anything of that sort, you've also had an opportunity to collaborate with other healthcare professionals. And that's a huge part of medicine, understanding how to work with others, how you all come together to provide the best treatment for patients. So the more you're able to expose yourself to different settings, the more you'll also understand how that'll allow you to become a better physician. And on the same note as what Phil mentioned, clinical hours are extremely important and not just to show committees that you know what you're doing, but the more you obtain, it also allows you to bring out your passion more as well. You're really able to see why you're honing in on this field of medicine. The more you explore and really find that passion and that fuel behind what's getting you into this area of interest. And um, on the note that Phil mentioned about obtaining clinical experiences in like a clinical setting or hospital setting as well, I do encourage aiming for like at least one experience that has that as a part of it, just because it is usually recommended to have at least one letter of recommendation mm -hmm. from a physician. And if you're in that clinical setting directly, it's more likely going to happen. Yeah, there's, there, there's, there's a lot there, but like letters of recommendation, like just kind of think about the application process. My blood pressure went up when you said letters of recommendation, I'm like, oh yeah. <laughs> Um, I think I've shared this on the podcast before, but different schools want different things from from different, you know, from like for, from their letters. And I actually had like asked for a letter from somebody. Um, I think I've talked about this on the podcast. I asked for a letter from somebody who was a professor that I also worked in his lab and he didn't write about being my professor in the letter. And so I had a school like immediately reject my application because they didn't mention that. Um, even though they were a professor for one of my courses, they didn't mention that. They just worked, you know, they mentioned the two years I worked in their lab and just discussed that mostly. Um, so there's a lot of moving pieces, like the idea of like, oh, I didn't, I wasn't clear on my, like when I asked someone to write a letter that they needed to, to write about this, like I was in their class, like just something, just that one sentence, like this person was in my class and did well. I'm like, that would have, 
um, you know, save me a lot of pain. And so I think this is something that like, just because there's so many applicants, you need to make sure that there's not any reason for a med school to say like, nope, not interested. And so um, this is why that like admissions, like help with admissions is so beneficial. Um, is just kind of realizing there's a lot of things that you might not have thought about. Um, and so like instructions for your letter writers, um, you know, based on this one school that I applied to, even though I applied to tons of school, um, like understanding that they all have different requirements and making sure you're hitting all those requirements is like a critical thing. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I like, you just said letters and like my, my blood pressure went up. I'm like, Oh my gosh. Like I remember getting that rejection and like, it took me like two months of just emails to like clarify that. No, this person was my professor at one point. Um, yeah, there's so much there to, to unpack. Um, but this idea of like du- occupying dual spaces, right? So something that, you know, as we've been talking, I, I really wanted to mention is that it's really easy to to just put an experience into one bucket. Um, There are some experiences that fit very well into two buckets. And so Mm -hmm. research can actually be both depending on the type of research. So where I was doing uh, research in the lab I was working with, my, uh, my, I can't say preceptor anymore, my my PI um, and uh, the people I worked with also had clinics that they attended, that they worked at. And so I was there for some of the clinical experiences and I was there for the most part in the lab for research. Um, but I separated the two in my, in my application because there were two different components and I wanted to make sure that both of those stood out in my application. There are a lot of other experiences, like you said, Phil, working in that professor's lab, but also having them as a professor. Um, you know, I had someone that I had as a professor and then I worked with them, you know, in, in terms of uh, teaching, right, for pre-meds. Um, so making sure that any any um, person that you have writing a letter for you, it doesn't matter if it's a requirement or not, have them write about each of the ways that they know you, because that's also going to show that you've given other um, other occupations thought. And so they want to know why medicine specifically, right? Like, it could be something that someone just, you know, really enjoys helping people, but then you might get the question of, well, why not social work? Right. right. So showing that, you know, you've worked with someone who's also involved in social work, like you were saying, just getting in that hospital experience, seeing teams work together will also convince them more of, I know I want to do, you know, MDDO. Right. And so all of those having, having each experience fully, um, fully explained, having each relationship fully explained and developed in, in written form is important. Um, and speaking of written form, I think something else that is really easy to to put off towards the end and do last minute are secondaries. So, Nicole, what tips do you have for students on secondaries? Oh, my gosh, that is a loaded one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so for those of you that may or may not know, you will submit your primary application toward the end of May, beginning of June. Ideally, you want to get your application in by the end of June at the latest, because it is a rolling admission. So the sooner you're able to get your application in, the more likely you are to advance through the later processes. So once you submit your primary application, there will be a gap of like typically four to six weeks in which you're waiting to receive your secondaries. Use that time to your benefit. Begin pre-writing your secondaries during that time because once your primary application is verified and schools start sending secondaries to you, you're going to get dozens and dozens and dozens of essays that you have to write within a two to three week period. And the sooner you prepare these essays, the more likely you are to succeed with the secondary section. Just to give it a little bit of a breakdown, secondaries are going to be essays that are specific to that school, and each school will have different secondaries that they'll expect. You can oftentimes expect a question related to like why that specific school, um, why diversity, research experience, anything unique about you. There's a plethora of different questions that they can ask, and we do have access with our admission services to a lot of the questions that are asked with secondaries. And so we can help you prepare before you even receive your secondary. So once you receive your secondary and it's in your hand, you want to get it out within two to three weeks. Schools will tell you you have like a two-month deadline. Do not follow that deadline because, again, it's a rolling admission cycle. 
So if you get your application in with the secondaries in September, guess what? Schools have already given out tons of interview invitations by then. And by the time they get to your application, it'll be November, December. And again, there are fewer spots available. So the timeline for secondaries is extremely important. Please, 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 I cannot emphasize this enough. Be proactive with the timeline, with the secondaries. We understand that you're exhausted after working on that primary application and you want a four to six week break. Wait until after you submit your secondaries to take a break. That can be your breather for a few weeks while you wait for your interviews and really take advantage of that gap between primaries and secondaries to get a head start so that once you actually receive your secondaries, you'll be good to tackle them right away. And again, with our services, you will have access to the same level of unlimited support that you get with personal statements for your secondaries. We'll help you with all the secondaries that you purchase within your package, and you'll have unlimited revisions for all those essays. And again, there's so many specifics about different schools that it really helps to be prepared and be ready to go through several drafts to create a perfect copy. I, I feel personally called out, Nicole, because <laughs> like a lot of the advice you gave is stuff that I really should have paid attention. This is where I messed up. You know, I said that I like spent a lot of time and I did really well in my personal statement, like your whole primary application, like you should spend months preparing for that. And that's why you want to start in the winter before the, like the year before you're applying. And, and so you want to kind of like get that going. And so like getting your application in as soon as possible. And then I just kind of waited and I started getting like secondaries back and, and it's kind of obnoxious how different they are. Like I had one school ask for like eight half page essays and I had one school ask for a four page essay and I applied to a lot of schools. And so all of a sudden over the course of, over the course of like a month, I got requests from like 25 schools that all wanted me to write like essays and all of the essays are completely different. And because I waited so long to get started on that, that happened about the same time school started. And so all of a sudden I'm in classes and like I'm working in a lab and I'm research. And so I ended up submitting like pretty much every single one of my secondaries the day that it was due at like midnight. I'm like, I got to get this done because they like, they're just going to reject me outright and I got to get my application in. So there's a lot of applications that I submitted at midnight the, the day the secondary was due. And I definitely should have done that earlier. I know that this hurt me. I know that this hurt me a lot because like you said, like there's a lot of schools that have already like done lots of interviews. And I remember interviewing at a school and they're like, oh yeah, we've already, ex uh, you know, extended offers and had acceptances for 80% of the class. And I'm like, and now I'm interviewing after there's only like 20% left of open space. Um, and so just being aware of this, the system and how it works, um, as I, I know that you had a good like pre-med committee at the school you were at, but like the school I was at, we didn't have a pre-med committee at all. And so I was kind of on my own and I did not prepare well. It's also doing MD, PhD, which is also a little bit different and the application is different. And I know, Nicole, that you do some stuff with, you know, if schools or, or if students are applying in like Canada or Texas or MD, PhD, like their applications are all slightly different, even the primary applications. And so just kind of knowing what you're going to need to be doing and when and getting that advice can be critical. But um, yeah, like absolutely. Like, like That's where I messed up. And so, Nicole, I wish the what you had just said, you had said to me, like, you know, way back in the day. And uh, I probably would have gone like gotten into like twice as many schools or three times as many, just because it's a lot of places I was interviewing at that were pretty much just full by the time I even interviewed. Yeah. I love that you mentioned that, you know, some schools will have you do multiple mini essays. Some will have you do larger essays for the secondaries. So you mentioned that um, the comment I had made earlier about having like good support at my school because they had a pre-med committee. So that was primarily for the primary component of the, the application. And when the secondaries came along, I also tended towards waiting a little bit longer than I should have. And so that led to a little bit more scrambling than again, it should have. Um, there were some that I did submit the day of as well. Some of them I was able to submit beforehand because there was a lot of repetition across them. And so, you know, you make mild changes or mild, uh, uh, small changes and whatnot. Um, something that I found really helpful was even if I didn't have the like mental bandwidth to sit down and knock a bunch out, I could still outline them. 
And so if you sit down and say, okay, you know, this is a topic that I know I'm going to get a couple of schools asking about, right? Just sit down and outline it, say generally what you want to write about in there. And then on another day, you come back and you actually flesh it out. And that for me was super helpful. And it's something I still find pretty helpful um, even now, like in, you know, afterwards, just going ahead and, and making these general outlines. And then like Nicole said, as a part of, you know, the, the Jack Weston um, services that you can purchase, there are a lot of opportunities to get that revision, get that help. And so having an outline right from the, from early on allows you to make the most out of that time with, you know, your, your admissions um, advisor. And so making sure that you have that game plan in place is important. Again, I know so many of us have a tendency towards procrastination, waiting until the last minute. Again, this is not something you want to wait until the last minute for. So even baby steps in the right direction is moving in the right direction. That's that progress idea, that progress, not perfection. But yeah, like it, just looking back, like it was so silly of me to spend months working on my personal statement and then like 45 minutes on the secondary. So like, I got to get it out like in the next 45 minutes. Otherwise they're going to throw my application in the trash. Um, and I really didn't do nearly as well or nearly as good of a job as I should have done on the secondaries. And so I think that's something that students, you know, students who are thinking about applying probably like if they're just now thinking about like the application process, they're not thinking about secondaries and you need to think about secondaries because that's kind of like that final like gate um, before you can kind of cross over into the realm of interviews. Uh, And so Nicole, I know you do a lot of stuff with interviews as well. Um, And I'm actually kind of curious. I haven't talked to people about interviews much since, since COVID happened. And I know that's changed a lot of things and like, like interview processes. Um, So I'm just kind of, curious what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, of course. So interviews are very different now because of COVID. One of the primary ways being that they're all online now. And that involves leaving an impression on a screen, which can be much more difficult because a lot of the nonverbals are not there to the same capacity. There's less interaction throughout the actual interview day. Oftentimes on interview day, you'll get to meet with panels, you'll have lunch with current medical students, you'll be able to have lunch with potential peers, and just even the way you interact with everyone on campus leaves an impression. So that is a big difference in one capacity. However, on the other end, it's also giving many students the freedom to interview at more schools than usual because a lot of that added expense of flying to other cities, getting a hotel, or finding housing nearby to stay at is gone and now students don't have to worry about that added cost and can really just focus on applying where they wanna go and interviewing all across the country without that added potential of debt really. Yeah. Yeah, that that's also something I didn't think about and like plan enough ahead. So like I know I've already mentioned this, but like most MD PhD programs have like two spots open or three spots open. And so, you know, that's a little bit different than like the average like med school, um, you know, like class size, like it's not like three spots. Um, most schools that have an MD PhD program, it's just like a handful of places. And so because I was applying for that sort of program, I applied to pretty much every single one that was funded and everyone that like gave me an interview. I'm like, I got to go to this interview. And so I did like 17 interviews. Um, and it was, it was insane. Cause most of them were like multiple days. And I spent like thousands and thousands of dollars that I hadn't really thought about with like, you know, lodging and airfare and things like that. But also just like I had I had a class, I had a biochem teacher who I rue to this day, um, who told me like, I'm like, listen, I have like all these interviews on Fridays, like for the next like two months. And he's like, well, you're missing all the Friday quizzes. So you're going to get zeros on all of them. And I'm like, wait, like, like I'm going to get a PhD like you. I'm trying to be like you and like do the thing. He's like, no, you're getting a zero on all of them. And I'm like, oh, and so I had to drop that class. And then retake it over the summer through like six. So I'd get a lot of like permission because it like, it wasn't technically open to like non-graduate students over the summer. And so like, I had to like jump through a ton of hoops, but um, the idea that like, now you can do it online. That's, and, and one side that's great because that helps avoid all of those problems that I just talked about. On the other hand, um, I'm kind of a personable person and I really like chatting and talking to people. And just the idea of like, I feel like I won't get that 
interaction the same way through camera. I, I think it's also just, it's just, just a lot different. Like some people who are very, like, I think I come across decent on the camera now, but that's because I've spent my life in front of the camera for the past decade, um, you know, teaching and like, you know, doing webinars and things like that. And so, but I'm definitely way better at it now than I was originally. And so like originally, you know, I'd be like, we'll have my, like my camera off to the side and like, I wouldn't even be looking into the camera and like, that makes a huge difference. Like, you know, versus that like kind of connection sort of thing. And so like, I feel like there's some just just some small things that like training can make some big effects. I also know that the very first interviews I did did not go nearly as well as the ones I did later. And it's just because I'd done some and like helped calm my nerves and I kind of knew what to expect. And, you know, it was kind of the first time you do an interview, like it, it's probably not going to go that well because it's just weird um, and foreign and, like, but I, I know like the later schools I interviewed at, I actually got a lot more acceptances than the schools I interviewed at first. Um, and so just, I, I, I put that down to just having some practice with interviews and just being better at interviews because, you know, I'd done some. Yeah. And something else that I think it's really easy to forget uh, as we think about virtual interviewing is also the environment that you have at home or wherever you're going to be interviewing from, right? So making sure that you have a decently stable internet connection, making sure that someone isn't going to walk into the into the line of the camera while you're interviewing, all of those little things, they can be a lot harder for some people to control, right? Depending on, on what their home setup or wherever they're at looks like. And so making sure that as much as you can, trying to control for that, making sure that if you live with other people, letting them know, hey, you know, I'm going to be interviewing this day around this time, I'll put a giant sticky note on the on the uh, refrigerator. Please try to keep things quiet, right? Try and avoid just barging into my room. Normally that's okay, but not today. Little things like that will, will make sure that you can stand out having um, a clean and polished uh, background, right? So it doesn't have to be, you know, the world's most interesting background, but it should, right? Like, you know, we're, we're lucky we have these nice uh, bricks behind us, but, you know, a simple um, white background is fine. Maybe, you know, a personal touch here or there, but you don't want all of your pictures, you know, 20 pictures behind you when you're, when you're interviewing and all those little details, they make a difference in this, um, in this virtual interviewing world. For those of us that are more introverted, it can, it can uh, be a little bit more helpful, a little less stress, um, but just making sure that you find ways to adapt that this different interview, um, mechanism to your specific needs will be helpful. Something else that, um, that you mentioned, Phil. So thinking about, like when you're, when you're interviewing, like what you're, you are looking for, right. That interaction with other people, you can also get similar interaction, understanding of the school by who you're interviewing with. And so taking advantage of that will be important. Try and don't be afraid to ask them, you know, what's your favorite part about this school? If you have a student interviewer, try and get an idea of what their, uh, their day-to-day looks like. Don't be afraid to ask difficult questions, right? One of the questions that I, I heard a couple, not after I had interviewed, and it was with respect to jobs, but I think it applies really well to medical schools too, is, you know, what have you seen while you've been here that needs that needs changing, that needs fixing, that needs growth. And how has that been addressed in this school, right? Those tough questions, they can still be really helpful. It gives you a good idea of what the school's about, how they interact with their students, how they um, support their students. You can't really get that as well if you're not, you know, asking those questions on this, this virtual platform. And then something else you said that the first interview just doesn't go as well because you haven't done these interviews before. And so that's something that I got really excited about while talking with Nicole is that you get so much interview support if, you, if that's something that you include in your package here at Jack Weston. And that's huge, right? I wish that I had been able to sit down and do multiple mock interviews. I'm sure my first interview probably would have gone a little mm-hmm. better as well. Um, and so taking advantage of that, however you can, is going to be really important. Definitely. There's so much that goes into the interview process, not just the logistics of interviewing from home now, but just the interview itself. And to kind of make sure that you're going into that interview process feeling confident and that you at least understand what's ahead of you, it's really important to go through mock interviews. Of course, until you actually experience an interview with an interview committee, you're not going to get all those nerves wiped out. But practice really helps calm nerves and really helps you feel prepared for the unexpected during the interview. 
They may ask you questions that you're not ready for, but just through the practice, you'll understand how to tackle different types of questions and what they're really trying to understand about you. And I think that's one of the reasons why I love navigating mock interviews with students so much. On one end, I get to really know them on a much deeper level. Um, of course, the personal statement secondaries have great depth, but interviews just really get you to capture someone's soul and see who they are. So I think that part of it is just really fun because we worked with some incredible students and I love that part of the work, but it's also a great opportunity for us to understand the strengths of our students, understand their areas of improvement and help really focus on those areas of improvement and turn those into strengths as well so that students feel confident with any type of question that comes at them. And it's important to note that schools have different types of interviews. You can have traditional interviews, you can have panel interviews, group interviews, multiple mini interviews, and each type of interview is going to be testing a different thing. And they're also each going to you know, require different types of answers from you, different types of thinking from you. And the more you practice each one of those types of interviews, the more you're likely to feel prepared on interview day. And again, we've had countless students apply to schools across the country and actually interview at schools across the country. So we're able to help you get direct help for those specific medical schools and go through mock interviews that are tailored toward the schools that you're actually applying for. So that when it comes down to it, you will feel prepared going into any interview, whether it's in August or February. And just one last thing to note with that, be careful with communicating with your peers about when they're receiving interviews to certain schools versus when you are receiving interviews. If you don't hear from a certain school until November, December, that's okay. It is later in the cycle, but you can still get an interview. Mm -hmm. It is not the end of the game. And we can work with you on preparing letters of interest at that point, providing updates to schools to ensure that you're really piquing their intention and letting them know that you're still interested in an interview. But please don't let your nerves get the best of you as you move through the cycle compared to other students. We've seen students that earned top tier acceptances getting interviews in December, January, where others didn't applying to those same schools and getting interviews in October. So keep in mind that your process is individual and that you're still able to perform at your best, even if it's at a different pace than others. Yeah, that like, <laughs> like talking about December being like a late interview. I feel like this is this is because I put in all my secondaries at the very last minute, which once again, I want to reiterate, don't do that. Um, but I did a lot of my interviews in January, February, even some in March. And I'm like, like it was like way late for a lot of my interviews and like part of it, like if I just would have done my secondary sooner or slash on time, um, then, then that probably would have been a lot better. But you know, the, the time that you're getting the interview isn't, isn't the, the last thing. Um, as I, like, I, I want to like touch on the thing, like, just as like a piece of advice for interviews, you talked about the like, asking questions. I think, that's that's why my later interviews were better because at first I was just worried about like don't say the wrong thing and I'm like only thinking about like what's going on with me and I'm like panicking on the inside like just just say the what's the right answer here um versus like later on somebody would would ask me a question I'd be like oh that's re that's a really interesting question I never thought about that so like hang on a second let me kind of like like think about like how I would well, I mean, like this, this causes like that sort of thing. And like, I would kind of like start to go into it and like talk my way through my thought process through it when I didn't really know the answer when I started answering that question. And I think that that just comes across as somebody who like likes to think about these things. And, and there were times when I would ask, I would kind of like flip a question around on the, the interviewer, like not that like I wouldn't answer it, but they'd ask me like, what do you think is the biggest challenge for medicine? And I would give my answer. And then that asked like, you know, just out of curiosity, like, you know, as somebody who's practicing in medicine, what are the biggest challenges you have just kind of like going through that? And like, then your interview, like it starts to become more of a discussion and like people like when people are interested in them. And so I don't think you should do that all the time and like try to flip every question. Like that's probably not a great idea, but to just be 
interested in the other people there instead of just focused on yourself and just trying to say the right answers and that's it. And that that's why the practice is good because the, the, the change there was, I just became more comfortable. And like, at first I was just panicking. And then later on, I'm like, no, like these are a bunch of people who are doing the stuff that I want to do. And like, I want to, like, I want to discuss this with them and kind of like have those conversations. And that's why all the practice interviews, Nicole, I didn't know that you guys did stuff kind of like focused on specific schools and like their interview process and like, you know, kind of helping out that. Cause that's, that's also a big one. Um, I've had a lot of, like a lot of schools I did had like some similar questions, but there were some that were like very different and it's just kind of like a, wow, like I had never seen this question, even though I've done a dozen interviews at this point, like this is, this is something a little bit different. Um, and so I think that that's like, there's a lot of good insight to be gained there. Um, and just kind of like, you know, if you can being able to think ahead about what you would say in that scenario definitely doesn't hurt. Yeah. Uh, Phil, so you, you touched on a couple of things that I was itching to say. Yeah. Um, I can, I can so see the, you like physically itching to be like, Oh, I want to, <laughs> I want to talk about this. We've, we've recorded too many podcasts together. Yeah. That's, that's what that tells me. Um, no. So if I remember correctly, my interview at HMS was also in January and it was way after the majority of my interviews. I think it might've actually been one of my last, if not my last interview. Um, and so that was, you know, nerve wracking going into it. I, I had tried to submit everything as early as possible, et cetera. Um, and then something else is these really are meant to be conversations. And so I want to reflect on my interview experience because I think it's one that is shared across a lot of students. And it's thinking that you didn't, that an interview didn't go well and not knowing where you stand and possibly having that ultimately affect your, your future interviews. And so I remember when I was interviewing, um, we had a faculty interview and we also had, a, a, I think we had like two faculty interviews, a student interview, something like that. And my first one was a faculty interview and it was someone who um, had a, like a very high position at the, at the school and whatnot. And I, I, if you had asked me and I did talk to my parents afterwards, if you had asked me in the right after I had that interview and in the weeks, months following, I would have told you that interview went awful. It turned into a conversation. I remember them asking me about some random uh, paper that had been written decades ago. And I was like, no, I have not read that. And their response was, that's your homework to go read that paper. Uh -huh. I was like, what? <laughs> okay. Um, I'm, and I'm I not even just, going to school here yet. And you're already giving me homework. Oh. <laughs> exactly. Um, and so I really thought that that interview didn't go well. And then my my student interview, um, you know, it's a very different flavor. Uh, they're, they're trying to get to know you as a person and whatnot. They had asked me something about kindergarten. I was like, what? <laughs> Where is this coming from? And I remember I just kind of laughed it off. I was like, well, I don't really exactly remember much about kindergarten, you know, just, yeah. just being, you know, myself and one. And I really thought that didn't go well because it hadn't gone like the other interviews had gone. Um, and those had been more conversational. Right. And so, you know, that wasn't I mean, I'm here. So obviously that I did not bomb those interviews, but had I had, you know, that type of interview at the beginning of my cycle, it would have been very nerve wracking going into future interviews because then I would have been like, okay, I don't know what I'm doing. Right. And so that's where having that additional, you know, mock interview practice and having to practice with different types of interviews can also be really helpful because each interviewer is going to have their, their own style. Right. And so making sure that you're ready for when those um, unexpected moments and experiences inevitably happen is really important. And then as you're going through, right, just like Phil said, it's a conversation. And so a lot of the interviewers will ask you at the end, oh, what questions do you have for me? Do you have any questions for me? And that's an opportunity to really turn that last bit into a conversation if you still have time to. It's going to make you more memorable. You're going to have more to go off of when you're deciding between schools. And one of the best pieces of advice that I got when I was starting my cycle um, was, yes, the school's interviewing you, but you're also interviewing the school. You want to figure out if you can spend the at least next four years there and still be a good version of yourself and still grow the way you want to. And so I think recognizing that there is, you're not entirely powerless in these situations. You also have some degree of autonomy in deciding, like, is this what I want? Um, can also take some of the, the anxiety off of these uh, otherwise very nerve wracking <laughs> interviews. Yeah. I love that. Like you're interviewing the places as well, because there like, there were a couple of schools that like on paper, I'm like, I'm super excited to go here. And then I like visited the school and I'm like, I don't think this is a good fit for what I want to be. And like, not that like, this is a bad med medical school. I mean, it's a great medical school, but like looking at what I want to do with my career, like this really isn't the best fit for me. And so I think that there is some value to that as well. Um, 
now I, I know like, like if, if I'd only gotten into that school, I would have been like, all right, that's where I'm going. But um, luckily, like though that, that helps you kind of understand it. So if you get to the point where you can start to make decisions on like where exactly you want to go to, interviews are incredibly useful for that. But yeah, there's just like a whole lot of stuff going on. And I know, like I, I talk to students who are prepping for the MCAT all the time, like hours and hours and hours every week. And I know like, I can't remember the last time I got a question about primaries, like the primary applications or secondaries or like interviews. And these are things that people should be thinking about, which is why we wanted to do this, this kind of episode. I know this is an MCAT podcast, but you should be thinking about these things. Um, and so like, that's why we invited Nicole and like super awesome to have you, Nicole. Um, but like, do you have, do you have any other like last minute thoughts or questions, Nicole, about um, kind of the whole application process? I think what I'd like to leave you all with is to just be authentic. Allow the committees to see who you are. That passion will shine. Your interest in medicine will shine. And just be as genuine as you can and really use this opportunity to show people who you are and why you're a good fit. You can move really, really, really far with the application process with being as authentic as possible. And on the other end, being as prepared as possible. We spoke about the timeline. We can't stress enough, be as prepared as you can be, get things in on time. So then you can also have that stress alleviated. And so that you know, you're doing everything in your power to move through that process and earn an acceptance. Thank you once again, Nicole, for joining us. Go ahead, let us know below what you learned about the application cycle or what you plan on doing to, to stand out the cycle. We'd love to hear. Yeah. Also, if anybody, like I know there's a lot of students that are probably listening to this that are maybe retaking the MCAT. Maybe they've even gone through part of this cycle before. But if you have any like weird questions you've gotten, like that's always the sort of thing I'm like just interested in. Um, weird questions or weird stuff going on with the application process. That's always super interesting. Great. And last thing to note, if you are interested in learning more about admission services, you can always select the admissions tab on the Jack Weston website. And you can use that as a way to reach out to me or get on our wait list to join our services. All right. Thanks for coming, Nicole. Thank you for having me.